My goal isn't to make anybody breastfeed who does not want to. You know, my goal is to help families to reach their own breastfeeding goals or their own infant feeding goals. Welcome to the Unapparent Podcast, the place that delivers deeply human stories about the unapparent truths of parenting. My name is Katia Reyero Lindor, and I am your host. Join us as we debunk myths surrounding parenthood and provide an empathetic, judgment-free space for parents and parents-to-be. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Unapparent Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Lisa Palladino. She is an international board-certified lactation consultant slash certified nurse, midwife in Staten Island, New York. Lisa's almost 35-year career includes 28 years of hospital experience, first as an RN, then as a CNM, and finally as an IBCLC. While at the hospital, Lisa worked for eight years in collaboration with NYC Breastfeeding Initiative on efforts to achieve baby-friendly status. In 2015, Lisa founded her private practice to provide for women's lactation, nutrition, and wellness needs with an approach that integrates the midwifery and functional medicine models. Currently, Lisa manages the Tongue Tie Experts brand on Facebook and Instagram, provides education to parents and professionals through social media outreach and courses, and produces the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. She loves to lecture and educate the world on the importance of breastfeeding for the health of infants and the developing airway. She is the author of the book, It Shouldn't Hurt to Nurse Your Baby, Healing the Six Most Common Causes of Nipple Pain. So here's Lisa. Thank you, Lisa, for being um, on our episode today. It's such an honor to have you. Um, I've introduced you professionally, but if there's anything you want to add um, on a more personal end or anything I missed, you have sure. the floor to do so. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure and honor to be here as well. And I, I always get a little tired after hearing my professional bio. Like, wow, <laughs> that's a lot, right? But um, most importantly, I'm a mom. You know, there's nothing more important than that. I'm a mom myself. Um, and a godmom. Um, I raised, I've raised seven kids because I had three of my own, but my sister passed away very young and left four very young children. So I helped raise them. So I'm blessed to have a, a big family. And I recently became a grandma. And I like to integrate my experience with my education, you know, because we can learn everything in the books, but it's personal experience you know, dealing with other, you know, families and, and moms and babies and all that. But our, we always bring our own experience to the table as well. And I'm, I'm turning it into as I'm in my wisdom years, I like to call it some wisdom, right? right. And um, I'm also happily married for so many years to my college sweetheart, which is kind of miraculous in itself. And I'm uh -huh. blessed for that. Yeah. <laughs> and I am like a crazy New York Mets fan, which is how I, you know, initially nice. <laughs> discovered that you had a podcast because I followed you through that. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, that's, that's about me personally. Awesome. Well, you sound like you have so much that we can learn from. Um, so 
you're um i don't even know where to start there's so many things Mm -hmm. we could talk about i'm sure um but i guess we'll start with um your your breastfeeding um expertise um since this Mm -hmm. is what it's about and obviously i want to just throw out there that i know that breastfeeding perhaps is not for every mom in the sense that maybe it's just it's not the right thing for them at any given time um i know some moms who feel um, shame for not having breastfed their kids, whether it's because they weren't able to, they didn't have the proper education at the time. Um, for whatever reason, um, that's a personal choice. I personally full-heartedly went into my breastfeeding experience. It was something that was really important for me from the get-go. Like the one thing I was like, yeah, I hope my birth and delivery goes well and safe and my baby's healthy but the next most important thing for me was being able to nurse my baby Mm -hmm. um so this second time around I hope the same and um so it'll be great to hear you know from from you firsthand also so yeah first I'd like to say of course you know um sometimes lactation consultants get a bad rap as like I've heard phrases that I won't even repeat about how um militant we are about breastfeeding and that's not the case my goal isn't to make anybody breastfeed who does not want to Mm -hmm. you know my goal is to help families to reach their own breastfeeding goals or their own infant feeding goals and sometimes that's mixed feeding sometimes it's exclusive pumping Um, of course I'd love it always to be everybody feeding at the breast but I realize that's not always possible and you know often we have the best goals but The other issue that we don't talk about too much with pregnancy, which is why I'm so glad I'm here, is preparing for breastfeeding. You know, we we need to talk about the things that can stumble in our paths that are going to make breastfeeding difficult and what we can do about it. And I like to talk about that before the baby comes so that everybody doesn't just have that like Madonna picture of the mom holding the baby and everybody's smiling and everything is perfect and easy because it's rare that it is perfect and easy. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I just want to say is no shaming, of course, because I don't do this work because I got it all right. You know, I've told my own story on my own podcast about how wrong I got my, my three different nursing experiences. You know, I really, I wish I could go back and I think one of the things we're going to talk about is how the healthcare system doesn't always support us. And I was a perfect example of that. I was already a nurse when I had my babies and I knew so little about breastfeeding. So I don't do this because like, I don't ever want to be like preachy, like, oh, you should do this because this is the right way. Absolutely Mm -hmm. not. You should follow your heart, get the most support for what you plan to do ahead of time so that you have the resources if you need help. Right. Yes. Thank you yeah. for that. Um, yeah. And so in, 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 I guess, a preventative way or just kind of in a, in a way to prepare, like how would you recommend um, new moms or even second or third time moms go mm-hmm. into their um, pregnancy if they want to breastfeed, kind of mm-hmm. preparing for that? What, what would you yeah. say in that respect? I think that the most important thing to do is to establish a relationship with an IBCLC. And, and most people don't even know what an IBCLC is, an International Board Certified Lactation Consultant. And the whole lactation field can be very confusing 
because there are so many different initials that describe different types of lactation care. There are CLCs, IBCLCs, CBCs, CBEs. There's all kinds of initials, right? But an IBCLC is the highest level of education, the highest stringent um, regulation on using the title. And the certification is difficult. It takes lots of years of education, many, many hours of experience learning from another IBCLC and sitting for an exam. And we have to re-examine every 10 years, every five years with education. And up until just this past year, every 10 years we had to retake the exam. So it's very stringent and it's like the gold standard. So you can get lots of help from other lactation um, professionals. But if there's ever going to be a problem, you want to get the best care that you can, the highest level if possible. And we're all over the place. We're worldwide. Um, the problem that sometimes happens is IBCLC is a rare, uh, it's not going to sound like it's a new profession to you because it started in, 19, in the late 1980s. So to you and your, your younger generation, that sounds like a long time ago. But when you think about, you know, how long have there been doctors and, and dentists and, you know, nurses, it's been so much longer than that. Mm -hmm. So it's a relatively new profession. So not all medical professionals know that we're out there, mm -hmm. right? So I would say that getting back to what you can do, first establish a relationship, find someone in your area, see if they um, give classes, see if they have something like I like to offer a package, you know, that's like one visit before, that's like a class, and one visit immediately following the birth, and then keep in touch with the mom during the early days so that the relationship is already there, right? So right. what I see with a lot of new moms is they think they've taken a breastfeeding class or they might have done something online, which is fine. But then when, when you are in that first, second, third postpartum day and you're overwhelmed and feeling a little hormonal and tired and in pain and you, you remember all those, you know, that those first few days are a little bit, can be a little bit overwhelming. Mm -hmm. The last thing you want to do is have to start like Googling and, and making phone calls and finding someone. Right. At that point, you're like so over feeling that way that if yeah, you didn't have that pre-established yeah. relationship, it's really tedious to like begin searching for that. that exactly. Point. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, mom, that that class or that meeting will hopefully include troubleshooting. Um, I like to talk about being a little bit like, let's talk about what could go wrong, which sounds terrible. But mm -hmm. if we talk about what's going to go wrong, then we can have solutions ready for when they do. Like, for example... Say you're planning a beautiful vaginal birth and it turns out to be a C-section, right? Necessary or not, it's a C-section. What do you do now differently than you would have done? How are things different for you? How are things going to be different for the baby? How are you going to, you know, manage the, the you know, maybe being more, uh, more uncomfortable, maybe having more separation from the baby than you planned? So going through all those things and being prepared for it. And I also like to talk about what is going on and what to expect those first few days that's realistic and safe compared to the goals of the actual hospital. 
right? Mm. Because the goals of most hospitals, not to, I mean, there are places that are doing this beautifully, but in most cases, the goal for the hospital is just to get you and the baby home as quickly as possible, having that baby regain weight. It doesn't matter to most hospitals how that happens, right? Mm -hmm. They don't, this is why there's a little bit more of pushing a formula on newborns so that it looks like they're gaining weight, they're making diapers, and they can go home, right? For that mm-hmm. normal, healthy baby I'm talking about. So you're, there are ways to know when, to, when is supplement necessary, um, when, is it, when are there other things you can do besides giving formula, and what you can do to um, make things go as smoothly and when you need to reach out for help. For example, when you should start hand expressing or pumping if you need to. You know, these are all things that we should be talking about during pregnancy. Right. Not not after the baby comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember for me, um, I since I had the experience of having a home birth, um, I had... Oh, I didn't know that. I love that. Yes. I had a home um, birth too. <laughs> well, I had a home birth and I'm planning a second home birth. So Beautiful. hopefully everything goes according to plan. Um, but the first time around, right... Um, my midwives knew that that was just mm-hmm. so important to me. I wanted to nurse, mm-hmm. and that was um, that was a, the, the experience I had, and it was beautiful because everything happened, you know, pretty seamlessly for me. Uh, yes, of course, I had the nipples crack, and it was painful, and I just had to push through the pain. Um, but I didn't have a problem with production. I know that's mm-hmm. something that a lot of um, women experience. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was a human cow. Um, <laughs> and my baby, she doubled her birth weight in the first month, which was incredible. Wow. She was pretty small. Wow. Um, when uh-huh. She was, she was uh, a couple weeks early. So she was a small newborn. Um, but she just latched and it mm-hmm. was just constantly nursing right mm-hmm. um so i don't know how much of that was just like you know serendipitous to happen as the stars aligned for me in that way um but uh since i didn't have the experience of a hospital birth and mm-hmm. i think a lot of um women who listen to my podcast do mm-hmm. um what would you say it is about hospitals um that they don't properly support uh, women who want to breastfeed. So again, you know, I don't want to disparage all hospitals because mm-hmm. there's some that are doing this really right and, and right. are supportive. Mm-hmm. But even in the best case, you know, I was a lactation consultant in the hospital and I was there to oversee maybe 30 women in a day, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, you can't give a lot of attention if you have to help 30 women breastfeed their babies. So you're not getting, even if there is a lactation consultant for you, you're not going to get a lot of one-on-one time with them. Mm -hmm. And they're often very stressed. I'm speaking from past experience because there's so much to do. It's, It's perfunctory at best. And sometimes it's even... It, it it would break my heart when I hear people say, oh, yeah, the lactation consultant came in and said everything was okay because the lactation consultant didn't really have time to see that everything was okay, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. now mom thinks she doesn't need a lactation consultant. She's just failing on her own because we always blame ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it's kind of that or you have the... You know, I'm going to talk a little bit about formula. And again, I'm not anti-formula. 
Thank goodness we have formula. Mm -hmm. But the way that the industry is set up in our country, especially, is that a lot of institutions, a lot of hospitals have been getting support from formula companies for years. When I was a new nurse learning about taking care of new babies, I was trained by formula company representatives. Mm -hmm. Formula companies gave the hospital money to build the nursery, right? So there's a little bit of bias going on there, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's well-meaning lactation consultants or nurses who are saying, you know, we want to be baby friendly, and I don't know if we could talk a little bit about what that means, mm -hmm. and then you have the administration saying, wait a minute, we're going to piss off the formula company <laughs> and they're right. supporting us. So what do we do? You know, that's one, that's one on the, on the administrative level of hospitals and structure that happens. And there's an underlying current of conflict between those who want to help people to establish breastfeeding and those who don't really care that much because it's not going to make them any more money. Mm -hmm. right? right, which is kind of shameful. Mm -hmm. the, the baby friendly initiative, one of the things about that is hospitals have to pay for formula. And historically, hospitals got formula free. And that's why there's well, part of the reason why there's a monopoly from it, certain companies. You know, everybody's using either one brand or the other because the hospitals take turns giving out one or the other brands because they're getting it for free. So it's, you know, Mm -hmm. essentially free advertising, right? free marketing, right, mm -hmm. to this captive audience. Mm -hmm. And we just got used to that as a culture to get the free formula. I worked at the hospital, and I thought it was wonderful that we could give gift packs of formula out to moms as they were going home, and how wonderful is it that there was a little teddy bear in the pack and all that stuff, right? However, as I woke up and educated myself more, I realized the harm in that. And... If somebody wants to exclusive breastfeed and there's formula in the room or they go home with a formula gift pack, they are like 50% less likely to give to exclusive breastfeed because if the formula is there, they're going to use it mm -hmm. because of those times when it gets challenging and you just, you're like, wait, I need to try something else. Or your doctor says, oh, why don't you try formula? And even though you wanted to nurse, everybody's making you feel like you're not doing a good job. You're going to go for the formula, you know, Yeah, because it sense. does get challenging. You're very lucky, but I'm going to just go back to your story a bit. Okay. Because if you had cracked and bleeding nipples, that's not, I don't want anybody to think they should push through that. There's things to do about it. Mm -hmm. it the yeah. early days should not hurt. There's things to do with positioning. There's mm -hmm. things to do with the way the baby is holding its mouth and stuff like that. So yeah. I'm sorry that you had pain. It was, yeah, it, I, um, it it was totally worth it for me to push through it. I know yeah. my, I, I was told, you know, I had a good support uh, system mm -hmm. and my midwives are amazing. And they did tell me, you know, that's not, it's not supposed to necessarily, mm -hmm. you know, like hurt. And mm -hmm. they did explain about the latch and the proper mm -hmm. way that the baby should latch. I think it was partly obviously me being a first time mom um, mm -hmm. and my baby being so small at first, right. her, she had a very tiny mouth um, mm -hmm. and this might be TMI, but I didn't have like the largest nipples. Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't know, it was something about just the way she latched and, um, and I could see what they were saying about how like it needed to be, you know, a Different. more like mm -hmm. open latch. 
Um, but it didn't seem to be affecting her feeding, like the amount of, right, of right. milk she was getting. It was just affecting my, yeah. my, my and body. And sometimes all it takes is one or two nursings in a bad position to yeah. crack your nipples. And then if you keep doing it, you know, it's going to continue. So sometimes if I have somebody in my office who's got sore nipples like you're describing mm-hmm. and we just, I just like tweak a little bit, like what if we just did this, you know, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, it doesn't hurt anymore. You know, and the nipples heal within 24 hours. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's one. I mean, our bodies are amazing, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. how they can heal and, and what they can do. And mm-hmm. I'm always amazed at how our bodies work so wonderfully to support our babies most yeah. of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the other thing that you spoke about was your, your copious milk supply, which is wonderful. You know, mm-hmm. we're not always that blessed, um, but it might have been you know, give yourself some credit because the more the baby nurses, the more milk you make, right? So you were so dedicated and probably had her latched almost continuously. And she was, she was like, you know, wanting to grow so fast. Her instincts were to just nurse and nurse and nurse, Mm -hmm. and that will bring on more milk. So one of the interesting points that we don't always know is the more you nurse or the more milk is removed during the first and second days after birth, the more milk you make at six weeks. Mm -hmm. So that's why one of the things that I teach is if you aren't able to nurse for some reason or the baby's having difficulty latching or you have to be separated, you need to start expressing milk, whether that be a hand expression or pumping, but we need to start telling the breasts that yes, you do need to make milk, we do need this milk, and get into that pattern of, as I call it, demand mm-hmm. and supply. Right. The more we demand of our breast, the more milk we make. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And that's why I didn't mm-hmm. um, pump for a long time because I didn't need to be separated from her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I count my blessings for that every day um, mm-hmm. because breastfeeding was so important to me. And so I didn't want to overproduce because she it was on demand. You know, she was right, every time right. she latched and latched and I was already producing quite enough for her I didn't want to overproduce and then feel the need to then pump and Mm -hmm. be so engorged that I was you know uncomfortable and all of that um Mm -hmm. so yeah I know that's um maybe not everyone's experience with um Mm -hmm. the production and the latching um and that's another thing I wanted to ask you about you do um specialize in in tongue tie correct and Mm -hmm. i don't know if everyone um is is educated in in what that is how to how to identify it um Mm -hmm. and how to kind of solve it you know is is i think the belief is that if you have a tongue-tied baby they they can't nurse they can't latch right well some some babies with a tongue tie will latch and some will latch and cause a lot of pain that doesn't ever get better you know Mm -hmm. yours got better um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it will get better, but other things happen, like milk supply goes down, or um, you'll have a baby that is nursing all day long, never is satisfied, um, is nursing all day long, never is satisfied and doesn't gain weight, um, isn't making diapers, signs that they're not transferring milk, even though it looks like they're nursing, right? So mm-hmm. you have the babies that don't latch, you have the babies that latch all the time and are are always upset, no matter what. But... Just to, for some definitions about tongue-tie, because I know a lot of people don't completely understand. Um, tongue-tie means, um, you know, we have what's called frenum in our mouth. And the frenum can be under the tongue, can be at the lips, both lips. It can be frenum in here. 
and the frenums are normal, but if they're too tight or in a position that prevents normal movement, then we call it a, a tie. So you can have a lip tie or a tongue tie or buckle ties, which are cheek ties. So if they're, if the baby can't lift their tongue up to a way, so to nurse, a baby has to open their mouth really wide and lift their tongue with the mouth open. So if the tongue can't go up with the mouth open because there's a frenum holding it down, when they go to lift their tongue, they close their mouth and pop off or have a very shallow latch and cause a lot of pain and can't effectively nurse. So one of the things that I like to say, you know, if it's, in your case, everything settled itself out and it was probably a positional thing. I think that if there was a tongue tie there, other things would have come up. But if you have pain in general, or um, it's worth getting checked out because pain that mom experiences is a sign that the baby's having a hard time or the baby's not nursing efficiently. So we want we don't want it to just all be about mom pushing through if things are really bad because that you want the, what's best for the baby too. So we don't want to, you know, we tend to martyr ourselves as mothers from day one, right? Mm-hmm. But you want to consider that it could be a sign that the baby's struggling. So other sides of tongue tie is if the baby's not getting a really good latch and not lifting their tongue, they can swallow a lot of air. And when babies swallow a lot of air, it's got to go somewhere. And sometimes that comes out as spit up or reflux. Sometimes it causes GI distress or a lot of gas pains or colic symptoms. And sometimes it causes, you know, again, a little bit gross, but explosive bowel movements, right? Diapers that like you can hear them across the room or they're, they're like explosive and sometimes they're more odorous than you'd expect a baby to have. That's not always a sign of tongue tie, but tongue tie should be ruled out if that's happening. But reflux, reflux especially, a lot of spitting up warrants um, an examination by someone who understands what they're looking for. And, and that exam should be a functional exam. So if breastfeeding is the function, it should be someone who can evaluate your breastfeeding. Again, back to an IBCLC. Mm-hmm. If it's an older child, because sometimes older children, you know, it gets past childhood or past babyhood and it's an older child having trouble with their function of their tongue, then it would be someone who can evaluate that function, whether it be a speech language pathologist or a feeding therapist who understands how the tongue moves and how that affects speech and feeding. Okay. Um, and is there any element that is genetic? Like, can it be, you know, one of the two parents had it? Could that potentially it's possible Mm -hmm. okay you know there's there's a lot of um you know musings about what's causing this and why is there seeming to be more tongue-tie now um um one of the things that i know to be true is that thank goodness this generation your generation is nursing more so tongue ties could go under the radar if you're bottle feeding because it's easy to force a baby on a bottle where you can't force a baby on a breast. You never want to force a baby on a breast. So we can have tongue ties that are missed because of bottle feeding. So now that more people are breastfeeding, there's more problems with breastfeeding. And instead of giving up, people are getting evaluated, right? Mm. So that's why we're finding more. Um, The other thing is that um, one of the um, people that does research in this area 
is an anthropologist who's a dentist, and he's been examining skulls of prehistoric, pre-industrial skulls up until now, and realizes that, you know, one of the parameters of having a tongue tie is your teeth can be overcrowded and you can need braces later on, right? So he's realized that prehistoric skulls don't have any under overcrowding. There's no tongues left in, you know, when you're examining right. things in your museum, but there's bone structure, right? So if the bone structure is normal, like nobody needed braces before the Industrial Revolution. And what happened around that time, moms started not always breastfeeding and we started having foods that were easier to chew. So losing that ability to chew, it's like use it or lose it genetically. So it's referred to as an epigenetic change. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard that term? Yes. So epigenetic meaning we have our own we have our genes, but our genes express depending on the environment. Mm-hmm. So a few generations of not breastfeeding, um, you know, formula was introduced in 1930, and a few generations of not using our jaws to chew made us not have great jaw structure and not have great oral function, and that includes the tongue. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, yeah. My mom, yeah, my mom breastfed me till I was old, so I was like four. Um, you're so lucky (laughs) yeah I mean and that was only me you know my siblings Mm -hmm. were are older and they were close in age and um you know I don't know if tandem nursing was like a thing she knew about Mm -hmm. back then um Mm -hmm. it's something I considered to do with my own um Mm -hmm. when I had a second because um my daughter was I mean she was still nursing until she was you know two plus um and it was only when I got pregnant that I weaned her and it was Mm -hmm. against my will. It was a very painful experience for me. And it was against her will as well, which is part of why it was, you know, such a hard experience. Um, But I, I, since I had been at risk of preterm labor my first time around, um, and I just got this sensation of just more nausea than usual Mm -hmm. every time she would latch on, which had just Mm -hmm. never happened up until I got pregnant again. Um, My plan had been to just nurse her until she weaned herself and Mm -hmm. if that meant tandem nursing even though I know that's very demanding um Mm -hmm. even more so than (laughs) full-time nursing one Mm -hmm. it's two right um but I considered it because I really did not want to wean her against um Mm -hmm. you know her will and that was not what I what I wanted to do either for Mm -hmm. for me but um that's how it happened and I've I've read that sometimes they want to start nursing again when the when the baby comes it's Mm -hmm. also just so recent it's not even it's Mm -hmm. been a few months since she weaned um yeah so if you're open to that it's totally up to her really if you're open to it you know we'll see yeah I don't know how it's gonna how it's gonna go and um (laughs) Yeah, I know every 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 child is different, so we'll mm-hmm. see how 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 much this one wants to nurse. Because my first, she was just nursing all the time, and then all <laughs> night long, you know. And it was just mm-hmm. like it was pretty. I mean, it did feel like a, a very demanding job for mm-hmm. me, um, but that's what I wanted my job to be. You know, I, I really, oh, I really that. wanted that. So that, um, wants, that makes me feel so good to hear that. Oh, I love yeah. it. Cause it is the most important thing you'll ever do. I don't care if I sound, sound like an anti-feminist cause I'm not, I'm a feminist, but mm-hmm. it's you deciding that it's that important to you, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and 
Can I just say I want to applaud you because I think that one of the things that attracted me to your account was your pictures of you nursing your baby and not an infant baby because we don't see enough of older infants nursing and toddlers nursing. And thank you for doing that because we need to normalize that because Mm -hmm. that is, I mean, the natural age of weaning is as you did, three to five years old, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's not for everyone. But in our culture, sometimes we shame people who nurse past six months. Yeah, people you know? think it's weird or something. Yeah. I don't know. And, it, yeah. and it's sad. I get comments. I mean, I would get occasional comments, you know, of like, why do you why do you post pictures of, you know, nursing your, your one-year-old or whatever? And it's just like, it's literally the most natural thing a mother can mm-hmm. do to her baby. Why would mm-hmm. I not? You know, it's part of my daily life. Like, if I'm going right. to post... What I'm eating, why wouldn't I post what my child's eating, you know, which right, is right. She's nursing like all the right. time. And you're um, making it normal. You're making it normal by showing it. So it's so important. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my I have, you know, my grandson is 16 months old and he's still nursing. And that's been a challenge. Her, my, my daughter has been a trooper because he's not to get into his story, but it hasn't been easy for her. And mm-hmm. she needs to cut down a bit just for her own sanity. Mm-hmm. So she's going through a little bit like you did with having to do it when I don't, she doesn't really want to. He certainly doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. He would nurse every hour if he could. Mm-hmm. And it's a challenge, you know, but you have to do the things that feel right to you. And I admire that you realized instinctually the right thing to do, even though it was hard, was to wean. Because we, we have to get back to our instincts mm-hmm. and do what feels right to us. You know? Right. Yeah. And if we lose our sanity, there's no good for our children in that either. So exactly. <laughs> we need to exactly. keep ourselves sane also. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's, you know, that's been my my pre- my pregnancy journey the second time around, which I never knew that that could happen, that I could feel, you know, nausea from from mm-hmm. her latching on. Um, that was very new to me. And I felt a lot yeah. of, of shame and guilt Aww. around it, too, because it was just um I didn't prepare myself for that. I kind of had envisioned myself just nursing her throughout my pregnancy and possibly mm-hmm. even um, while nursing the newborn. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I was, um, I guess I had to, you know, tell myself that I, I did what I had to do, you know, even right. though it didn't necessarily feel right in all aspects. It it just, it was what I needed to do in the moment. Um, mm-hmm. So I gave myself yeah. comfort in that. <laughs> So when I was practicing as a midwife, if I had a toddler that could nurse, sometimes we used that toddler to help bring mom's milk in. If Mm -hmm. the infant, if the newborn was sluggish, Mm -hmm. we'd convince the toddler to help because they knew how to do it, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and it was always a blessing to me to know that when there was tandem nursing, that we did have someone that, like the milk would be there. And the milk comes back amazing. It's, Mm -hmm. it's. Again, our bodies are incredible with how they we make milk for the babies we need. The babies who ask to nurse, there will be milk there, in the, as long as there's nothing health-wise going on, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the other thing, you know, getting back to how we said in the beginning about um, what to do before, um, before the baby comes to prepare. When you speak to a lactation professional, they'll go over with you the risk factors to breastfeeding difficulties like low low milk supply and what the risk factors are for low milk supply, which will either help you to prepare in case there will be 
or to reassure you that there's no reason why you shouldn't make milk, you know, Mm -hmm. because there are some risk factors, previous breast surgery, some hormonal um, problems like um, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Some people have lower milk supply. Infertility treatments or needing infertility treatments sometimes lessens your ability to make milk because there's some sort of hormonal problems to start out. Mm -hmm. Um, And other things like diabetes, gestational diabetes, high blood pressure. So that's not to say that if those things are present, you can't breastfeed, but it's more of an important, like having a plan of what you're going to do, you know, maybe starting pumping earlier or doing some hand expression even before the baby comes to be ready to feed the baby and, you know, on an individual basis. So there's, there's, there's things that you can prepare for ahead of time. If you know you're going to have a NICU baby, like some parents know ahead of time, for some reason, their baby has to be born early, or if the baby has something wrong, that's going to necessitate a separation, you can prepare for that and know what your plan is. So you feel proactive before the baby comes. Yes. Oh, that's so important. Um, Thank you for bringing up also, because that is some many, many moms realities. Um, that mm-hmm. I guess maybe it's not talked about that much, but yeah, NICU babies, you are separated from them for longer than, you know, the, the alternative. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I, I want to briefly go back to um, what, when I was talking about the hospitals and their lack of maybe support and preparation, um, is there something that if you had to just, I mean, I know you've said a lot and it's been, it's been, super helpful hopefully everyone has really gotten a good grasp of what they need to do um but there's there's something that i i had another episode um and i had a guest speak about self-advocating um and like when you're pushed the formula onto you and you're very firm on the fact that you want to do everything possible before having to resort to that um what is something that you know the the women come can come in armed with and just and just kind of stop that that the push from you know the mm-hmm. hospital nurses whatever um trying to you know get the formula um right onto right. them that's that's a good point um mm-hmm. you know most importantly being armed with information so knowing the fact that all babies are going to lose weight after birth mm-hmm. and I didn't know that before I even had my own babies. I didn't know that babies lost weight after birth. And it's normal to lose up to 10% of birth weight in the first three or four days and then start regaining. Some babies won't do that much. Um, If a mom gets IV fluids, the baby is going to retain some of that IV fluids. So somebody say who has a two or three day induction, they're going to get a lot of IV fluids and they're going to be really, really puffy. And the baby puffs up with those fluids too. So after birth, that baby, just like the mom, is going to urinate a lot and lose those fluids, which is going to drop the weight. So say say a baby is born at seven pounds, five ounces, but mom got, you know, a liter of IV fluids every 12 hours, which is kind of standard in the hospital, sometimes even more. That baby might have been seven pounds, three ounces before she got IV fluid. So now when that baby loses two ounces, it looks like the baby is losing so much weight, but mostly it's the water, the extra fluids that they got. So Mm -hmm. knowing that it's normal to lose weight, knowing that 
um, the baby won't regain birth weight and we're not expected to be back at birth weight before two weeks. So as long as there's a trend upward after those first three or four days of just one ounce a day, which is typical, will happen if you're nursing and nursing is going well, then the, there's no reason to add formula. Um, the other reason that sometimes formula isn't is given is if the baby's not seeming to make enough diapers. So again, arming yourself with the information that on the first day, babies only make one wet and one dirty diaper. That's what's expected. On the second day, two and two. And on the third day, three and three. And that diaper, especially the bowel movement, starts out really dark, black, tarry, cold meconium. That mm -hmm. lightens up. So by day six, it should be nice and yellow. If you give formula, I mean, if you have to give formula for a medical reason, that's one thing. But if you give formula, you have to expect that that bowel movement is not going to get lighter because there's iron in the formula and the iron is constipating and formula in itself is constipating to the baby. So they don't have those bowel movements. Mm -hmm. So those are, those are two pieces of information to arm yourself with that it's normal. The other thing is to, to, have other ways so that if the doctor says to you or the nurse says to you, we're concerned that your baby's not getting enough, we want to give the baby more, the first thing that you should do is give more of your own breast milk if you can. And the colostrum is literally liquid gold. It's the most special fluid in the entire universe. And it's made especially for what that baby needs, right? So human babies need human colostrum. So I even encourage people who don't plan to breastfeed, just give some of that colostrum to the baby because it's it's just like a building block of, of their, their gut, their flora, and everything good. So mm -hmm. you can hand express, and there's lots of videos online to teach hand expression, into a spoon and just spoon feed the baby or ask for a little syringe and put the, you know do it that way instead of giving a bottle of formula. And if you do... If they absolutely do need to give some formula, you can give it in smaller amounts. So back to the marketing aspect, we use either two or three ounce bottles in the hospital. No brand new baby needs two or three ounces. The first day's feedings are about a teaspoon, right? And we're giving them this much instead <laughs> of this much. So you can sometimes a little bit of formula, I'd prefer it to be breast milk, but if it has to be formula, just a little bit is enough to wake the baby up to let them get the impetus to feed, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes they're too tired to feed, giving a little colostrum, even on your finger, even just hand expressing on the finger and letting the baby suck it off your finger mm -hmm. will sometimes wake the baby up. And I like to do that skin to skin. I always, you know, um, recommend lots of skin to skin for the first even couple of months, as much, as much as you can. That's the best way to settle a baby. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots of skin to skin um, at birth if possible. And if not immediately at birth, whenever you're reunited. So back to that NICU baby, right? Say the baby's got to be in NICU overnight and you didn't get to do skin to skin and have that golden hour in the delivery room where you just spend time skin to skin together. Pretend the baby was just born on that first time you get to be together you know undress from the waist up take the baby's clothes off except for a diaper put them on your chest cover cover them with a blanket so if you're separate again if you're separated and whenever you get back together pretend the baby was just born put the baby mm -hmm. on your skin to skin 
and let them crawl down to your breast or root to your breast and enjoy that closeness together. It's really special. Mm-hmm. And and skin to skin helps milk supply as well. Amazing. Oh, well, thank yeah. you. For, thank you for that information. That's um, it's really great to know, especially, you know, first timers. We don't mm-hmm. we come in knowing very little about all of this. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was blessed with amazing midwives and, and support system that told me all these things. But had they not, I, I imagine I would be so clueless. And there's still so much I don't know. Right. Um, yeah. But it's I would say being armed with with information is just the best you can do to advocate for yourself and and your partner whoever's with you you know to also be able to know this information and know your desires so that they can advocate on your behalf as well Mm -hmm. i would say that's yes absolutely i mean i'm a fan of doulas because sometimes your partner might be intimidated by the hospital system Mm -hmm. and a doula can act as a very you know, as a good advocate for you, if she knows what your wants are, mm-hmm. she will remind you. She's not going to do anything, you know, or she's not going to, she can't like get in between you and the medical system, but mm-hmm. she can remind you of what you wanted and help give you suggestions on how to approach the hospital staff. Right. You know, yeah. and, and the other thing to know, I think it's important to mention that the, the jargon now is, yes, of course we support breastfeeding. Everyone says they support breastfeeding, but not everybody knows how to manage breastfeeding, right? Mm-hmm. So in theory, doctors, even OBGYNs will tell you, of course we want you to breastfeed. Pediatricians want you to breastfeed and support breastfeeding, but they don't always know how to manage things when things start to get a little bumpy, you know, mm-hmm. and are quick to resort to supplementation. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, one of the things that you spoke about when you were telling me about your experience was that you didn't start pumping. And again, I applaud you for that because there's this, I think, social media driven need to pump and show large supplies of milk in the freezer and the stashes and all that. Mm-hmm. And there's no need for that. There's no need for that. And it, it kind of upsets me sometimes because not everybody could do that if they wanted to. And it's not always a good idea to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part of, of that, it's one thing if, if you have to go back to work, you need enough milk to go back to work with. Mm-hmm. But you're also going to have to pump when you're away from the baby. So you're going to be bringing milk home. And the other thing about pumping too early, if, if everything is going well, you know, if things are going south, you need to pump to give the baby milk. That's one thing. But if everything is going well, Breastfeeding is as simple as it can get. And once we start thinking, oh, no, I have to do something, you know, we we interrupt that normal flow, that natural mm-hmm. flow, and we make it harder for ourselves. Right. You know, you're putting something else into it. Now we're doing dealing with pumps and we're dealing with washing the pump and bottles and storage and all that stuff, you know, and, and timing. And before that, choosing your pump. Nowadays, there's so many, which is yeah. great that yes. we have so many options, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but I remember I, I did buy a pump and I ended mm-hmm. up using it very little just because, mm-hmm. as I said, I it didn't feel necessary for me. And again, you know many women maybe have to go back to work and they have to eventually Mm -hmm. you know pump and do all of that but um I just felt like 
the the simpler the better i was maybe Mm -hmm. partly just me not wanting to overwhelm myself as you said with yet another task Mm -hmm. um it was quite enough feeling exhausted constantly (laughs) from having Mm -hmm. a newborn um and then learning you know how to be a parent and so it was just like yeah i'll just nurse her and that Mm -hmm. was the best thing for us you know that was how i chose to do it and how it worked out for us um and so I got to say, you know, I feel feel pretty fortunate in, in that in that area. Um, but I was also very adamant about my desire to exclusively, mm-hmm. you know, nurse for as long mm-hmm. as I could. So and and just, you know, let me turn the tables a little bit. Do you have any questions for me for your second time? Like, say you were coming to me as a lactation consultant. Like, was there anything that, you, you know, you're wondering now or like thinking about something because this is what I do when second time moms or third time moms come to me I'm like tell me what you would want to change about the first time Mm -hmm. well honestly I'm now questioning if my daughter actually did have a tongue tie um (laughs) because it was it was I think unnecessarily painful and it was because of the shallow latch that's what Mm -hmm. I think the problem was Mm -hmm. um and um there was something else that you said that I was like oh it was also very smelly she she like pooped a lot um uh but i was like this is such a small child and i have a very clean diet i like to say you know i eliminated dairy um Mm -hmm. i'm vegetarian and i was like it can't be what i'm eating that's making her like fart right that was what i was gonna say the other thing that does that Mm -hmm. is dairy or sometimes vitamins right supplements well i was very conscious of like what i was putting into my body because i know you know she's nursing from me and i was like they smell very powerful (laughs) but i kind of just was like well i don't know you know maybe that's the way they are um yeah and um in in spanish we um we roll our r's and my my husband can't roll his r's Mm -hmm. and that's why i asked if it was like hereditary or you know Mm -hmm. genetic because i'm thinking perhaps he had one when he was yeah. little, and they was never discovered. I don't think he was nursed for very long, and uh-huh. I don't think, as you said back in the day, it was like very known. Right, so it wasn't right. like something people like look right. to dis- discard. Yes. Um, and so part of me thinks. Maybe she did. And currently, I mean, she's still two. She's speaking a lot, but she doesn't roll her R's yet. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I'm like, and maybe. if she has problems with things that. Um, make her certain sounds where she'd have to get her tongue up to the right behind her teeth, mm-hmm. you know, like or the, um, the other thing to look for is make sure she sleeps with her mouth closed mm-hmm. because if, if someone's having trouble with their tongue, it shapes the palate and mm-hmm. then they tend to open their mouths to breathe. Right. So you want to always make sure like baby snoring is adorable, but it's not healthy, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so open mouth posture, snoring, um, and you know, she, if she does well with all textures and eats all different kinds of food, that's a good sign. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some kids will have trouble chewing and swallowing certain things mm-hmm. if they have a tongue tie, but it's not something to, you know, it's not something that can't, that needs to be addressed in infancy. You know, this can go as an adult. I mean, I had mine done when I was after 50. Really? You know, so yeah. 
Okay. Um, and mine has more to do with sleep issues and, and stuff like that. I mean, mm-hmm. we could do a whole episode. I don't want to go on that rabbit hole because we're talking about infants here. Mm-hmm. But I will say that I do observe in grown people, especially some people on a certain team, that definitely have a tongue tie. And I could tell by looking at them that really? they have a tongue tie. Well, and see. I'm like, oh, I wish I could tell them. You know. <laughs> well, that's like now in retrospect, I'm like, I never really like specific got down to like discarding it you know so because in the end I what I had heard about it is you know if there was a problem with the feeding then I would have to really dig deeper and see what what the problem was right since she gained weight so quickly yeah well she's getting what she needs and and your support people were very supportive but we don't learn about tongue tie in school so that's why I know more about it Mm -hmm. because I learned about it after school even in training to be a lactation consultant I didn't learn about tongue tie except for the anterior tie where it's attached right at the beginning of the tongue and you can't lift the tongue at all. Mm -hmm. That's what we learned about in school. Okay. We didn't learn about the the further back ties or the shorter frenum that cause problems, you know, um, even though you can't really see it unless you know how to examine for it. Okay. But I like to do a functional assessment. I don't look at what it looks like. I like to, you know, observe what's going on. Right. Yeah. Because as as you say, if it's if it's apparent physically, then there's Mm -hmm. one thing. But sometimes it's not. Um, So Mm -hmm. I have, you know, learned a lot from you. So now that (laughs) going in this time, I Uh will know what to kind of the the signs that are there and then I might have to call you yeah (laughs) I might have to call you I also Um, have an online course for parents you know I'm not mm -hmm. saying this to plug myself but if somebody can't find local help Mm -hmm. there's an I have a very affordable online course that takes you from what if I think my baby has a tongue tie how do I know what do I do and all that because Mm -hmm. this is often can get to be a complex situation where it's not just about having the frenum um, released. And I prefer, I usually refer to dentists who have a laser because it's a quick office procedure. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when a tongue has been tight for a long time, we have to retrain the tongue. And there's exercises to do and preparation to do and making sure, you know, if there were, if there were feeding challenges, we want to make sure that the mom's supported in how she's going to feed the baby immediately after the procedure and making sure her milk supply is optimized and things like that. So all of that is, is in the parent course, but it's also important if you're looking for someone to find someone who does work with a network. So you don't, you wouldn't want to just say, Oh yeah, my baby's got a tongue tie. Go to the pediatrician. They recommend an ENT who does a quick snip that may or may not solve the problem because the problem is often deeper than just that quick snip. You have to do other things to make things easier. And also you want the support through the procedure. You know, I, I have a whole, um, my newest platform is like, we have to think about what the family is going through. And sometimes a quick early procedure isn't a good idea because of all those complex things that are going on immediately following birth, we want mom to recover, you know, Mm -hmm. We want mom to be stable and feeling a little bit in control again um, and having her milk supply optimized and having the baby fed. Maybe, you know, we have to bottle feed the baby for a couple of days or or make a plan, depending on this situation, to make it least the least traumatic as possible for the family going through it. You know, sometimes as medical professionals, we say things like, oh, yeah, no big deal. Just, you know, let the baby have the surgery. And, and that could be 
just the idea of your baby needing a procedure mm -hmm. can be traumatizing to a parent, right? right? So yeah. I, I like to honor that. And, and, you know, the midwife in me wants to do the least we have to always, you know, mm -hmm. as least intervention as possible. So there, there's a fine line into not treating or treating too fast, right? So right. there's mm -hmm. that. And that's, you know, my life in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have been such an insightful guest. I appreciate your time and, and sharing your knowledge and experience and wisdom with us. Um, oh, so, um, yeah, I hope to have you back, perhaps. Um, I feel like there's so many more topics we could discuss. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll end our episode here, but I just want to thank you again. And um, all of my listeners, I think um, they'll have your information definitely when I, yes. when I post our, our episode. Um, and I will reach out to you come <laughs> baby number two to, if I have a, like if I have any issues. So oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to chat with you today. <laughs> Likewise. Gracias, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Unapparent Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe as we release a new episode at least every month with an exciting new guest. Be sure to also follow us on Instagram for all the Unapparent content you never knew you needed. <laughs>